on the sports pages and the business pages, they give you the headline with the main news. So-and-so won the Kentucky Derby. Or such-and-such company missed its earnings projection. And then you get the rest of the story down below. If you didn't get much sleep last night and you want to doze a bit, which I don't recommend, let me go right to the headline before we even get to the scriptures and turn your attention to the cover of the bulletin. And I think a very insightful and helpful quote, which will then be amplified upon in the writings of Peter. The poor struggling sinner, most of us, all of us, who was erroneously told that the struggle with sin that he or she is currently experiencing is a sign of defeat, and that the person is not yet a Christian or else has chosen not to take advantage of the victory offered to all those in Christ, should instead see the struggle with sin as proof that sanctification is actually taking place. The New Testament knows of only one victorious life, the life of Jesus Christ. Only one has been successful in overcoming. Only one who has faced the struggles and trials of life did not feel crushed or set back by them at some point. That's Jesus. And there has been too much talk of it being up to us to overcome when he is the only one who can and will. Through a, and, and we can only do it through him and through trusting in him. This is what Peter is trying to communicate to those receiving his letter throughout the region of Asia Minor in these days. Peter, the former fisherman who's now seeking to fish for men. Peter, the one who is, has been raised up to an exalted position, having been himself the most colossal failure, save Judas Iscariot, among all of the disciples, and especially among those who were closest to him. Did Peter have a victorious life? No. Even after trusting in Christ and saying that he believed that Jesus was the Christ in Matthew 16 and the being that rock upon which Jesus said he would build his church, nevertheless, Peter stumbled again and again, not just in his denials, but we can see it in several places in the New Testament. So we pick up First Peter here in, in uh, our, our text and the outline pages 10 and 11 hopefully be a little more relevant this week than last. Beginning at, beginning at uh, verse 3, I'll be reading, although the particular text we're looking at is in verse 9. First Peter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for in His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just a little further now. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That is God's word. Let us pray. Fill our hearts and minds, O Lord, this day with your truth. Push away error and unrighteousness. and Give us a clear perspective of what you want us to know as we face the trials of this life. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you might give us uh, equipment and application so that, indeed, this week is different than last. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. As I say then in the outline and opening paragraph, we have a God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who through suffering came to glory, and so we take our own path in the same direction. This is what Peter is saying. So that we may come through suffering to glory. This is Peter's theme. And we see it uh, in in, uh, verse uh, 3 and 4 where we have this, we are given this new hope that is kept for in, without an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, that is kept in in uh, in heaven for us, and we are shielded by God's power, as we saw last week. In this, you greatly rejoice. For a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But, notice, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So there is this pathway that Jesus followed through suffering and trial and tribulation to glory, the glory of the resurrection, the glory of his victory over sin and death. In the same way, rather than going around our sufferings or rejecting them out of hand, we find that they invite us to the same pathway that is described here in 1 Peter. It is a pathway that is, for a little while, trial, grief, tribulation, suffering, difficulties, but it will result in, clearly verse 7 says, that it may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So there is a process going on. The, the trials and tribulations have a purpose, and the purpose is to bring the process toward glory and wonderful conclusion. Therefore, sufferings and trials rather than being pushed away or rejected or avoided, become the key ingredient, the pathway that God uses to get us where he wants us, to glory. So, the cost and the trials and the tribulations are important and can be said in the light of Romans 8.28, to be good. What is the Christian view of suffering? Well, the Christian view of suffering and trials is this, that suffering is neither an illusion, which some philosophies and religions teach, that that suffering is, is just imaginary, it's not real, you can overcome it in your mind, nor is it a curse. Now, there are elements of suffering that are, of course, the outgrowth of sin as a result of the curse of the fall. But 
by itself, suffering is not a curse. It can be God's instrument, as I say, toward glory. Furthermore, it is only through our wounds that we can appreciate what he did for us. We can see what he did for us through our own troubles. Our troubles and trials are minuscule compared to his. They are real, and they're not to be denied or to be uh, avoided. They are, they are real. They're a part of life. They cannot be avoided, no matter what we do, no matter how wealthy, no matter how healthy, no matter how industrious we are at avoiding difficulties, they come to us anyway. Three things I want you to get in, in beyond the headlines about what it means to suffer for Christians. First of all, you will never be able to get through suffering with your head up unless you know the Bible. Unless you know the Bible. In all this, he says, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. In what do you greatly rejoice? You rejoice in the resurrection, the sanctification process, the election that he mentions, this golden chain of gospel truth. This fundamental foundation. I am a sinner. God loves me. God sent his son to die for me. And thereby, by his death on the cross, I have justification. I am set right with God. And I am forgiven of my sins. And I'm given the gift of eternal life. A new birth happens. And in addition to that, I'm set on a path that leads to glory ultimately. When we suffer... Everything seems to be shaken. When we're in trials and tribulations, the world seems to be coming apart. But if we would be remembering, as he says in the beginning of verse 6, in this, in what? In your spiritual foundation, which is not shakable. In that you rejoice. You don't rejoice in the sufferings themselves. That would be mental illness not fun. We don't rejoice in the sufferings themselves, but we see them in the context. And the context is that I'm going to get through this because of what he did for me. The foundation. In this you greatly rejoice. In what? In the first five verses. In the, in the fact that he is uh, writing to God's elect who have been scattered, but nevertheless have not been lost by the Lord. They are scattered sheep, but he still knows where they are. He's coming after them. And through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and obedience to Christ Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood, grace and peace be yours. These are the strong foundation of the Christian life. And when we face trials, it's on that foundation that that we rest and lean. And it, of course, is to that foundation that Jesus turned when in John 17 and upon the cross he calls out to his Father and builds his, his fortress of, of uh, perseverance through this uh, path, pathway of suffering upon his relationship, upon the solid facts of his relationship with his, with his Father. And when we suffer, we must not lose sight of the fact and the facts of his foundation for us, laid out so beautifully in verses 1 through 5. So remember, when the world seems shaking and the ground seems uh, disrupted, and when you feel your heart shifting and your heart becoming downcast and despairing, if nothing else, turn to 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 5. 
Praise be to the Lord, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In spite of these sufferings, in, this, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection. Fact after fact after fact after fact is laid out here. Truth after truth after truth to build a solid and firm foundation upon which he says in verse 6, you will have a little, for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. Paul calls it, it says the same sort of thing. He talks about light and momentary troubles. In comparison to the foundation that he has laid for us, they are. Now, they don't seem light and momentary at the moment, nor easy, and we're not minimizing their existence. They are very real. They come at us like a flood. They, they unnerve us. They take us down, and we feel the weight of them. They are not imaginary. They are not something that can be just explained away. The Bible says that our troubles are very real. It doesn't say, oh, just forget about it, or it doesn't say uh, these things are just in your mind or in your head. They say they're real. These light and momentary troubles nevertheless are real, and you, and you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He says, I've heard about your troubles, I've heard your difficulties, and I'm amazed at what you've had to endure. But you must understand the reason you have been able to endure it is because of the firm foundation of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what the Lord has done through the Spirit and what the Lord has done by his own electing love in the beginning. So there is, as I say, because you know this doctrinal golden chain, uh, it will get you through as you cling to its truths. Cling to the fundamental facts of the faith in times of shifting sand. Okay, it seems like I'm being abandoned, but he said he never would leave me or forsake me. It seems like my sin is so great that I can't get free of it. But the Bible says that the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit himself is working in and through you. Well, it seems like I will never get through this. But the Bible says you have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you have an inheritance that will never wear out, that will never be in some way diminished. It is yours and it is certain. So look at these wonderful gifts from God and rejoice. That's the application of point number one. Savor your doctrinal foundation as you face trials. The danger of confusion and despair is very real because we are emotional beings and the flood of trials and tribulation can sweep us away. So we cling to the rock that is higher than I. We, we hold on to his truths, not just some, in some inward and spiritual sense, but in a real cognitive way. We say, now wait a minute. It seems like everything is breaking, but he said he would not let that happen. Wait a minute, it seems like my trials are, are beyond, beyond repair, but he said there'll be another day. Think about it. Think about it. There will be another day on the, uh, the day when he visits us, as he says a little later. Secondly, Christians are subjected to both grief and rejoicing with trials. Christians experience both the troubles of life along with the joy of their salvation. The word here in verse 6 is that uh, it's a grief uh, normally attached to the loss of a loved one or a funeral experience, a memorial experience. But this is a very uh, active word not related just to the loss of somebody to death. But you are suffering grief. You're suffering uh, upheaval. 
It's the picture, the, the word there is a picture of a troubled sea, a sea that is foaming up. And life is very uncertain and rocky and rugged and jagged and, and bumpy. A stormy sea, distress and disruptive. We should not be surprised when trouble happens to believers. I've said that before. But both rejoicing and suffering are discussed here in the present tense. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. These have come, verse 7, so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise. It, that resulting in praise is in the present tense, not just in the future. That you would have both grief and rejoicing at the same time, side by side. God's tenderness and encouragement and the disruptions of this world, side by side. Christians are not happy all the time. We do feel suffering, and it does get to us. This is not weakness or failure of faith. This is not the unvictorious life. Only one lived the victorious life, as the quote on the cover says. The fact that I'm knocked off my equilibrium and discouraged and despairing because of circumstances or trials inward or outward is to be expected. And yet, we may bear up under it. It says in Job 1.20 that in all this... Job did not sin. He bore an awful lot. Second Corinthians eight nine says we are four, four verses eight and nine says we are perplexed but not in despair. We are cast down but not destroyed. Indeed, that's the picture. Indeed, at the same time we rejoice and we are affected, hurt, discouraged placed under trials. So once again, the Bible proves itself to be very realistic in describing what happens. We are, it doesn't deny that suffering exists, and it doesn't say that we should only be happy all the time. It says that God places suffering and trial side by side. Look at the life of Jesus, infinite rejoicing in the presence of his Father, and yet sadness everywhere at his, the response, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. Get thee behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. Peter, Peter, Satan has asked that you could sift you like wheat. and Peter says, Oh, Lord, if you, if you say the word, you will not die. We will follow you forever. And, so both together. Christians are both sadder and happier than other people. We feel it more. When the gospel gets into your heart, top of page 11, and you grasp what you are, that you are totally loved, you are then free to admit that there is a lot of sin in your life. This will sadden and humble you. Before you were in denial, but now you're willing to say, okay, all right, all right, all right, it is true, it is true. Both rejoicing and weeping now become deeper. Deeper. 
Grief and suffering affect us more than before, and we now have a greater joy. Verse 8. Though you have seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Here's a contrast. I'm Peter. I saw him. I don't see him now, but I did see him. You don't see him. Maybe many of you have never seen him. Nevertheless, though you have not seen him, you love him. There's something going on. There's a transfer going on inside. There's a real interaction going on. You're trusting. You're clinging to him. In spite of your sin, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Joy, trials, right together, brought in the same recipe that brings us to glory. The living hope overwhelms the grief. Our hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. Indeed. Peter knows what he's talking about. He has sinned greatly. Well, some would say, Luther would say boldly. He has been the chief of sinners, like the apostle, who says the same thing. This isn't wedded to personality. In some ways, Peter had a more effusive and outgoing personality than Paul. But they both say the same thing about the Christian experience. Paul the intellectual says, I am the chief of sinners. He feels more deeply than anyone else how great has been his the pain and, and suffering that he caused to Christ by his own rebellious heart. In the same way, Peter could name any number of instances where he consented to unbelief. Paul was present at Stephen's martyrdom. Peter was, I mean, if they were sitting together, they could, they, if they were talking about failings, they, they could each list a long category catalog of sin and reasons for despair. But greater are the reasons for rejoicing. For we have a Savior who overcomes our sin. So thirdly, and implicit in what I've been saying, trials happen not just because the world is a bad place, and it is, but also because you need them. You need them. And then we come back to this wonderful summary of God's providence from John Newton. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So if we receive trials and sufferings, some of them of our own making, no doubt. Nevertheless, many that are not of our own direct making. Because this is a bad place. If trouble and grief are in your life, then you need them. You need them. They are not to be patently rejected. If suffering and trouble and grief are in your life, then you need them, even if they are bad and even if they are painful. Of course they are. But if it's not in your life, then you don't need them, even though you think you do. Why? So if you're not suffering terribly at this moment, God is giving you a bit of a respite. But don't worry, those times will come, because that's part of the recipe for growth in the Christian life. Because there is an order in your life, a sovereign hand is at work, these things all work out for good. The Father is monitoring the trials in your life in order to teach you 
It is his order that we submit to. He knows we would be crushed by constant trials, but we also sense that we pass through seasons of greater grief or difficulty, and we're called upon to trust him during those times. Hebrews 12 refers to the work of the Lord in our life as going to the gym. Gymnasio, he said. That's the Greek word, of course, for what we use for gym. It's a discipline. It's a regimen. It's an order that is in place and at work in your life. And the Lord, as our Father, is disciplining us as sons. He's working in and through us by to accomplish His purposes. And so Samuel Rutherford said so many years ago, His wise love feeds us with hunger. Because that's what we need. And so he withholds his blessing for a season that we might seek him. And it fattens us with famine. You see, he uses difficulties to enrich us. And Jesus faced the full measure of our sin on the cross. Just think with me for a moment. He was only on the cross for three hours or so. Maybe a little longer. That's not really very long when you consider all of human sin. All the centuries and all the people. Somehow during that time, and in that moment of death, he fully tasted of the infinite, seemingly infinite amount of sin that the world and his people have committed. So you will never learn who you are without suffering. It becomes a friend. That's what Peter is saying. There's a tension here. He's not saying that they are good in themselves. Only that they have a good purpose. But he's certainly saying that they're not bad in themselves. Because they have a good purpose. What he wants to do is redirect our thinking about the troubles that we face. Economic, physical, relational. The myriad of things that come into our lives. The myriad of uncertainties are there not to be avoided or bought off or or gone around, but to be embraced. Not in some warped way saying, oh, hurt me more, Lord. But in the sense of saying, this thorn in my flesh shows me that your grace is sufficient. You have taken my sufficiency away. My desire to be my own savior away because I see that I can't do it. My trials have exposed me The thorn in the flesh has shown what I'm really about. What I really want is an easy, pleasure-filled life. And the thorn in the flesh has interrupted my goal to achieve that. And I don't like it. But look what it has shown about who I really am and what I really value. And I say I love the Lord Jesus Christ, but what I really want is what I really want. Consequently, the thorn is helpful. Your trials are revealing a lot about you. You need to face it. This is painful self-discovery. They only last a little while. Remember, these 
these uh, a little while, he says, very clearly in verse 6. And Paul says, light and momentary troubles. Remember in verses 1 through 5 that he's a loving father and he works all this for our good. Verses 6 through 8 are really a commentary on Romans 8, 28. These things will work out for good. They're used in spite of their pain for good. Jesus took the real cup of suffering and trial. These little cups are for our good. See, he's the one who drank completely of the wrath of God. He's the one who, who, who endured griefs unimaginable for us. He will be with us. There is purpose and meaning behind it all. And it is only for a little while. So, the troubles I face become to some extent my friend. Because they are used in the process of moving me from sinful self-absorption to glorious pres- into the glorious presence of the Father, and no one escapes them. Even if they weren't good, they can't be escaped. They're part of God's plan for our pur- for, and purpose for our lives. And Peter folds them right into the beginning of his letter, because his, the people he was writing to were just like us. Why am I having these problems? Why can't I get above them? Why don't they go away? I prayed that the thorn in the flesh might be removed, and it hasn't been. Peter says, rejoice. Rejoice. These have come, verse 7, so that your faith, based on the firm foundation of verses 1 through 5, of greater weight and worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There is a glorious outcome, and we're back to where we started. Jesus, through his travail and tribulation, came to glory for us. And he calls his disciples to walk, as Peter will say soon, in his steps, to follow along behind him, to come in the wake of that, and to see ourselves as moving through the same sort of trajectory as the Savior. He came down from heaven, which we didn't do, but having come from heaven and become incarnate and come through this world, he faced nothing but misunderstanding, rejection, shame, some popularity, but always mixed with opposition. And so shall we. Though we are nothing like him in the, in the sense of being divine. And some of the problems we face are of our own making. He who was sinless faced difficulties as well. And he now places them under his sovereign hand, sprinkling them, as it were, across the course of our lives so that we may lean into them and embrace them. Who wants a thorn in the flesh? Nobody in their right mind. But in the transformed mind, the Romans 12, 1 mind, the renewing of your mind, you begin to say, okay, the thorn can't be removed anyway. Let's make it my friend. I have this relational problem and it 
Nothing I do makes it any better, so let's, let's make it our friend. Not submitting to the problem, but submitting to God's providence. We say, okay, Lord, enable me to bear up under it. Enable me to see your hand and strength in it. Enable me to see a great outcome on the other side. This is the Christian life. It is the same in Peter's century as in ours. The same for Paul as for Peter. The same for every culture and people around the world. This is the Christian life. There is no other. And Peter describes it so beautifully here. And now as we move to the table, we see it wonderfully retold to us in the suffering and resurrection of our Savior. Let us pray. As we come to the table now, Lord, and as we reflect again upon what you have done for us before we were born and while we were yet sinners, we acknowledge that we are weak. We don't want trouble. We hate it when we are inconvenienced. We dislike grief and uproar in our lives. We don't want to have any kind of difficulty at all. We want smooth sailing and sunny skies. This, because we haven't yet learned that trouble produces patience, and patience, hope, and hope, perseverance, as Paul says in Romans 5. We pray that you will make those things happen in our lives. Help us to hate trials less, to embrace them more, to see your purposes in them, And help us to love you more deeply for having gone through so much for us. In Jesus' name, amen.